Welcome back to the Governance Podcast at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Irina Schneider, and I'm your host. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Peter John, who is Professor of Public Policy in the Department of Political Economy here at King's, and who is known for his work on agenda setting and local politics, behavioral interventions, and randomized control trials. His most recent book is called How Far to Nudge, Assessing Behavioral Public Policy, and in the book, he takes us through the origins of behavioral economics and how its ideas have translated into public policies. In particular, he offers a new vision for how governments can take citizen feedback into account in the policymaking process. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'd love to discuss your latest book. Uh, before we get into the meat of the argument, can you tell us a little bit more about the concept of nudge, what it is, where it came from, and how it has been implemented in the past? Well, nudge is a word that has come into common parlance and is often used to describe a certain kind of public intervention, one that's quite low cost, that just involves encouraging someone to carry out an action which they would ideally uh, want to do. So it's a kind of government policy which is very light touch and seeks to respect the autonomy of the citizen in its relationship to government. It was pioneered, the term was pioneered by Thaler and Sunstein uh, in their book of that name, published in 2008. I mean, that book summarized quite a lot of research and insights from behavioral economics. What it did was it introduced this idea of nudge as a way to kind of summarize this kind of package of interventions and, part, and partly as a result of that book, um, the term became commonly known and commonly accepted as a particular kind of uh, policy intervention. So I think we're looking now at a period of the kind of success of Nudge as something which governments right across the world aspire to do, at least in some of their uh, interventions. So it's quite a remarkable set of intellectual uh, developments taking quite a short period of time and that was what I was very interested in doing in charting uh, these developments in my book. What are some examples of nudge policies that have worked in the past? Well the classic ones are to do with reminders. Uh, citizens frequently receive lots of communications uh, from governments uh, which are often quite routinized, uh, particularly kind of letters, reminder letters which may have been designed by committee or an individual civil servant many years ago and often just repeated and sent. And nobody really knows exactly how effective these, these things are. And I think one of the things that the nudge architects have become quite good at is looking at some of these kind of routinized communications and saying, well, how could we design a behavioral uh, aspect to these letters that actually might appeal to someone's cognition and as a result increase the compliance or intended behavior from that kind of communication. So the classic example is uh, someone's, someone's very slightly late paying their taxes. The public authority doesn't necessarily want to go straight to legal action straight off. That's very costly. Uh, so it wants to kind of remind the citizen to comply with the request. Um, and um, it's the classic one was to introduce a kind of behavioural cue to this and to indicate 
how many other people had already complied with the request on the grounds that people usually wish to comply with what's called a, a social norm. So these kind of social norm tax letters have become very, very common. HMRC, the British Tax Authority, uh, uses them uh, quite regularly. And basically, they are able to sort of nudge people to kind of settle settle their tax affairs uh, much earlier than it's just say a kind of standard wording. So these kind of communications um, have become quite common. Uh, of course, there's a, there's a range of other ones. Uh, the, another example would be uh, various kind of default options. This is a key nudge idea that we'd like to uh, conform with a preset option that doesn't require a huge amount of effort to change. So the, the other classic example is uh, default mechanisms uh, to encourage us to, say, donate uh, our, our organs when you're kind of renewing your kind of tax uh, license. Um, so uh, these have become quite common uh, and have become kind of trailblazers for this kind of what's called behavioral public policies. You've personally had a lot of experience in bringing about nudge experiments in public policy. What has that journey been like for you? Where did it start and where is it now? Well, I've always been interested in the relationship between public bureaucracies or, or local governments or central governments and the citizen. I've always been interested in how that relationship works. And I've always believed it's fundamentally an interactive relationship with kind of rights and responsibilities uh, on both sides. And, um, and I've always thought that people in public life can do a better job and communicating with citizens, and also communicate with citizens in ways which really understand exactly where that citizen is coming from in terms of their work life, their aspirations, um, and that bureaucrats need to kind of make that kind of imaginative leap. So I've done quite a lot of that work, uh, looking at particularly citizen contacts over, over voting and participation. But when I was at the University of Manchester, uh, I became very engaged with uh, a whole range of kind of policy interventions, in particular trying to test them with randomised control trials. Because the great thing about RCTs is that you can, you can test a whole... You don't actually know in advance whether these interventions right. are going to kind of work. Um, so the RCT allows you to kind of vary your nudge according to... to, vary, to, to, to kind of, you know, you can allocate one to each kind of treatment arm and then you can come back with exact point estimates... As to, as to how these things work. So I became really engaged with the RCT and um, uh, as a result started trying out all these behavioural interventions with uh, local authorities. And I really became aware that uh, you had to encourage local bureaucrats, local politicians to embrace not only the nudge method but also the RCT. So I think nudge needs to kind of work within the organization that it has to kind of it needs somebody to champion it within that organization so i've always become quite interested not only in kind of doing the research but also trying to ensure that kind of the bureaucrats the politicians come along the same journey uh, and creating that kind of collaborative uh, relationship so i did a lot of that up until uh, about 2010 and um, in 2010 the uh, uk nudge unit was set up the behavioral uh, insights team and I was very lucky 
in being invited to advise the team in its very, very early days uh, mm-hmm. under, the, under the Cameron Coalition government. It was a very small unit uh, in the kind of cabinet office. It was charged with uh, delivering behavioural insights across government. And in the early days, uh, um, we were preoccupied with trying to encourage agencies to uh, do these do these trials and uh, to kind of trailblaze these behavioural insights. Mm-hmm. So in the organisation, so I had this kind of tremendous experience in Manchester of encouraging local authorities to engage in behavioural interventions, and then in in London, uh, I, I became doing a similar sort of thing uh, at the kind of central uh, government uh, level. So we did a, we did a range of trials, um, and since that time. Behavioural insights have really taken off. Uh, behavioural science team used to be like uh, seven members. Now it employs over eighty people. Has about four or five offices across the world. Um, so I think it's been really exciting seeing something that started with these early experiments has now become kind of mainstream over this kind of short period uh, of time. But I think still the same issues are, are there. One is how can you test these things. Uh, in robust ways, how can you encourage bureaucrats and politicians to take the method seriously? And in the end, how can you also keep the citizen uh, engaged along the journey and not be sort of seen as a kind of subject of behavioural insights, not seen as a sort of part of some kind of scientific experiment which is unleashed on the citizen, that citizen actually is a willing part, uh, so in a sense, the, the, the public policy objectives we all care about and that's why we're doing behavioural interventions, is something where the citizen has kind of consented into and really understands why it is the government is doing these sort of things. So I think that that challenge remains uh, as important now as it was when I kind of started uh, on this journey uh, nearly 15 uh, years ago. How do you propose actually including citizens more into the process? Well, I think... Uh, there's a, there's a variety of ways of doing this. One of the things I became aware of at uh, University of Manchester was the limitations of what you might call um, sort of deep engagement with citizens involving deliberative democracy exercise. I, mean, there may be, I think they're quite often quite useful when you have a incredibly controversial topic which you really needs a lot of uh, thought and engagement from the citizens to craft proposals which may be legitimate. And I, and I think deliberative democracy citizen juries are very, very good for that kind of purpose. But I think for the everyday policy activities, I think most citizens are busy. Um, they're engaged with their kind of personal lives. They don't really have the capacity to to kind of reflect on a, on a large scale. Right, yeah. um, so over time, I've become uh, interested in... Um, Interventions which actually may incorporate an aspect of citizen reflection, um, but not necessarily, but short of the kind of full-scale deliberative exercise. Um, so this kind of mini thinks um, I've called nudge plus to say that you can have all the advantages of a behavioural approach to public administration, but think of ways in which citizen reflection and involvement could be kind of incorporated. Um, I think one is to, uh, within the nudges themselves, to perhaps encourage a kind of thinking uh, element to them, the natural fact. Uh, and I think nudges have often in the past been very fearful of 
citizens being aware of that the nudge has been taken place. It's always been assumed that if you tell the citizens right. what you're doing, mm. uh, the citizen will say, "Oh, I've, I found out about you now. Yeah, I'm, right. go, I'm actually, go, I'm not, I'm not going to do the, the, the act." So effectively, the, the nudge. There's this concept called reactance, mm. which is the idea that people like to resist being effectively told what to do. Right, right. Um, so in a sense, reactance is often thought of as a consequence of your kind of more prescriptive kind of policy making. But nudges may suffer from it as well, particularly if citizens are being nudged and then they become aware that perhaps at some later stage they're being nudged. Uh, in maybe the case that may actually cause kind of reactance and so, so thereby undermine the basic objectives. Now I'd like to kind of build in more citizen consent at an earlier stage. I think we know that a lot of these interventions don't actually suffer. There's a lot of experimental evidence that suggests these, these interventions don't suffer from people becoming aware of it. Um, and that's a natural fact for nudges to make sense at all. Citizens need to have some awareness of the kind of public policy context within which that nudge takes place. I mean, I think we're a long way from, and we often see nudges as like marketing for the public sector. Well, I think that's not really the case. The natural fact, a lot of the choices we're encouraging citizens to make are quite complex. They involve understanding complex linkages between the citizen and a whole range of other actors. Um, and I think we need, it's important the citizen actually considers some of those kind of linkages, perhaps as part of their way of understanding the, the public authority itself, that the public authority is not just doing something uh, for kind of short-term purposes or for the prestige of the politician. The, the public sector really cares about some of these long-term objectives. Um, so you can, so you can encourage sort of some sort of thought as part of the nudge. Another way to think about it is to to look at it as a, as a, as a kind of journey. That rarely do we have kind of behaviour changes, kind of what some one-off change which happens and then is not revisited again. Most behaviours are kind of repeated. You know, let's let's consider a behaviour like um, healthy eating. That's not something you can just eat healthily just for one week. Right, and yeah. Forget about it. Right. <laughs> uh, it's a kind of lifelong kind of choice. Sure. Um, and we know that changing dietary behavior is really quite difficult because these things are uh, socialized as part of childhood uh, family experiences. They're reinforced through kind of peer groups. Uh, there's kind of advertising, a whole range of reasons why people have the diets they, they do. To change diet is quite a big is a, is a big ask. And it's also quite subject to kind of short-term changes where people change their diet for a very short period of time and then they kind of revert back mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. a, a, a more longer-term kind of pattern. Um, so the way to think about that is actually is actually to think of the citizen on some kind of journey whereby they might actually have a reflective exercise about why it is important to change mm -hmm. your behaviour. Mm -hmm. And that could be reinforced by kind of nudges uh, at a later stage. So the classic uh, example in this area is what's called commitment devices. Commitment devices are ideas that basically you enter into a kind of almost like a kind of contract to say I will do X, Y, and Z, and then the commitment then keeps you to that contract. Mm -hmm. So the so the idea is that uh, if you if you've got a commitment to, uh, to eat healthily, uh, you don't actually have to think every day. Well, I've got to eat my five because uh, the vitamin content X, Y, and Z. Your commitment is kind of doing a lot of the work, kind of, kind of for you. So it's it's kind of it's kind of economising on that kind of cognitive effort. It's helping you keep on track. But at the same time, is that in order to enter into that commitment device, you need to have actually had some reflection 
to kind of get there. So in some ways, what you're doing is you're kind of dividing up the journey into an aspect where you might be kind of thinking and reflective, and then another aspect where in actual fact you're letting automatic processes take over. Because we like automatic processes. Mm. We, we can't function as human beings without automatic processes. We, you know, if you walk down a corridor, we're not thinking about where to kind of put our feet. Mm. Um, so it's, a, it's similar to the whole range of behavioral uh, devices. We like automatic kind of processes. And in the nudge world, it's not necessarily wrong that the government sort of you know, do use kind of signals to, to kind of keep us that way. But I think at the same time, I think it's important to build in uh, elements of, of, of thinking devices. Um, another example is, is, is the whole pensions example. It's quite an interesting one. Um, and we've known for a long time now that uh, people make very poor choices in the early stages of career and to choose a pension. So in the British case, there are a lot of occupational pensions. They're quite generously funded. The employer will, 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 will double up the, the kind of payments. The way in which pensions work is you get this kind of accumulation uh, of a pension pot over a long period of time. So it doesn't hurt you vast amounts while you're paying into your pension. But then once your income stream stops, you get this kind of benefit mm. uh, at the end. And the, and the problem is that people tend not to look at the kind of costs uh, of not having a pension at some kind of later date. These things are kind of um, are discounted quite mm-hmm. heavily mm-hmm. Uh, into the future. People prefer kind of present benefits. Um, so policymakers have known that basically, well, how, how can we encourage people to, 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 to kind of do this? Well, one thing is just to default them into a pension scheme. So effectively, uh, they're told when they, when they join a new employer, you're in the pension scheme. So the idea is that people prefer it. People will stay in a default. They have to kind of work hard to get out of the default. So the idea is they default into the pension scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after a while, they, they become, they become unaware of the pension. Right, they just yeah. look at it on the pension slip. Right, exactly. And then one assumes that by the time they get to thinking about their retirement, right, to, to the extent which they think about these things at all. Right, exactly. Um, Oh well, thank goodness! Um, thank, 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 thank goodness! Uh, thank, thank goodness for that. So, yeah. I mean, that kind of suggests that the state is kind of in a kind of very paternalistic kind of role. That basically, right, it's right. making choices for the citizen. Mm-hmm. Now, the citizen can always get out of it. This is the mm-hmm. kind of um, a libertarian paternalist argument, right? Right. But the idea is that this, is, this, is, the, is the state is, is shifting it. Mm. But then you get this problem, you know, right? And this is happening right at the moment. Uh, is that people are wanting to blow their pension pots? Mm. They've basically got all this huge amount of money to place up. And they think, well, why not? Why not have a good time now? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you know, you're 63 or 64, you take it out of your retirement. Mm-hmm. You've got like a pension pot of several hundreds of thousands. And you take a view, well, yeah, I might, I might be going to, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe my time is up. Maybe I should blow it. And then <laughs> a lot of citizens, and they're going off on these kind of quite unsafe uh, mm. investments. Yeah. Now, um, and, and, and to a certain extent, the, the state can't really control that. Right. Uh, people, are, people are free to spend their pension pots. They've had, mm-hmm. In a sense, the rules have, have had to be re- regulated. So wouldn't it be much better is if, if the government actually engaged in more of a conversation with the citizens? Mm-hmm. So maybe the default was right, mm-hmm. but maybe over time people do need to think about these sort of issues, these long-term, mm-hmm. these long-term issues. Otherwise, if you're always going to encourage a kind of sense of passivity 
then basically you're kind of encouraging people not to really think about what the long-term aim of these pensions were. So right. effectively, so in some ways, the kind of passive nature of pension mm-hmm. saving mm-hmm. has actually perhaps encouraged this sort of approach. Oh well, let's not worry about these sorts of things. Right. Um, so I think, so I think we can see that these behaviour changes as as, as as kind of long journeys. Uh, I mean, we're we're citizens for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can we inject behavioural measures and and more reflective measures? Mm-hmm. on this journey so this is where I kind of think the opportunity for Nudge Plus mm-hmm. really, really exists and it really, mm-hmm. really requires some kind of long term thinking mm-hmm. by governments to to encourage this, this more kind of two way relationship between citizens and our state so in a sense behavioural interventions are really just part of mm-hmm. an overall journey well it sounds quite um costly in a way because deliberative democracy requires a large infrastructure to get people to be able to talk to the government and the government to respond. How does that process actually work and what's the actual cost of Nudge Plus? Well, I I think you're quite absolutely right that the the classic deliberative mechanism is actually quite costly to to, to implement. It has other problems. Often you have to kind of self-select certain numbers of citizens. Because mm-hmm. they, you just cannot have these kind of large scale right. exercises. Yeah, um, I've experimented with some of these things, uh, like a, a large scale online deliberation. But these still always still suffer the same problem: that a lot of people don't actually want to get engaged, mm-hmm. and they often get a small number of people who want to engage. So, mm-hmm. so I think there's the cost, the practicality, the uh, self selection. I kind of think a lot of things can happen much more informally and actually they work better in kind of low-cost ways. Um, so, um, so for example, um, a lot of online communications are often uh, often done very informally, very kind right. of um, uh, interactively. Sure. Um, so there's a whole range of kind of internet-based you know, interactions mm. that, could, that, could, that, could, that could simulate kind of Nudge Plus. Mm. Are we talking like Facebook or online forums, mm. apps, things which have sort of uh, an interactive mm-hmm. uh, uh, element to them, which don't, which don't. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, citizens are doing Nudge Plus already. They're, they're kind of they're tweeting. They're they're kind of engaging with other citizens mm. in ways which we wouldn't really thought mm. sort of imagine, imaginable. Now, this is often uncontrolled. Um, it's you know, and and, and, and rightly so. Um, and um, and often, I think a lot of the um, the government inspired. Sort of deliberation exercises online are often um, uh, are often kind of inexperienced and right, sort of rather yeah. clunky, and uh, so I think yeah, I think no one's going to answer those questions exactly. <laughs> uh, so I think there's a lot of learning to to mm-hmm. to to be to be done. Um, another is actually a lot of, a lot of the um, there's a lot of interesting work looking at targeted interventions which use uh, uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, um, and effectively. Uh, the idea is that you know if you can try to encourage people to make kind of better choices, um, some kind of mechanism to help them think a bit slower, to 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 think through their options, kind of works. Now. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. if you think about the vast costs of a lot of these kind of social welfare kind of programs, uh, the huge costs of 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 those kind of poor choices, which are then picked up sure. uh, in in social policy, you know, CBT is is actually relatively. Sort of low cost. Activity. What is CBT? A cognitive behavioural therapy. Mm. So whereby people are 
are encouraged to think in certain kinds of ways mm. through 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 various exercises. So is this an example like uh, when we have the pictures of on the smoking packages that show like lungs and people in the hospital or things like that? So you shouldn't smoke or um, no, not so much those. And I, I'm not sure those things actually really really work uh, mm. for some of the reasons we were talking about earlier. That they are basically. Um, uh, your smoker kind of looks at those and can can can, can process those things quite quickly and screen them out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's an example whereby I think if if people don't know the intention, if people are kind of thinking they're kind of being manipulated, mm-hmm. they then develop strategies to counter that manipulation. Right. So your smoker right. basically knows yeah, all they the stuff is on there. So basically, they 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 kind of so, mm-hmm. so effectively the the the. the, the I mean, if you're looking at behavior change and kind of smoking, mm-hmm. you know, the most powerful thing that that, that, that really affects that is is, is public debate, mm-hmm. peer group pressure, mm-hmm. um, a whole range of kind of soft kind of signals. Um, one of the things that interests me quite a lot um, is why do smoking bans, why are they successful? And I think they're not, they, they look initially like government is kind of trying to regulate the citizens, like, right, okay, right, we're banned smoking workplaces. And then instantly mm-hmm. it stopped. I don't think that's an accurate mm-hmm. um, uh, summary of really what's going on. I actually think that actual fact, if you look at the success of of, of these interventions, quite a lot of nudge plus is actually really going on. That basically the government realised quite early stage wasn't a position to kind of regulate these things. The actual fact it had to have a kind of conversation with citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in some ways, I think in the nudge world. There's a lot of hostility to public information campaigns, mm-hmm. partly for some of the reasons I've suggested that people tend to be ignored. Um, but I think public information campaigns, if done correctly, can be part of this overall journey that people are encouraged to think about some of the big issues behind kind of smoking, mm-hmm. the cost of smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the reason why the smoking bans are successful is that up to their being introduced, people are actually already starting to kind of modify their kind of behaviours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Certain employers are starting to change. So in a sense, the whole atmosphere out there is, is kind of changed, that all the signals are all kind of pointing the way. So when that kind of ban comes into place, it always happens into when everybody kind of smokes smoking. It actually doesn't need mm-hmm. vast amounts of enforcement. It enforces itself because all that kind of soft work has been done Kind of, kind of, kind of prior to that. So, I think, I think those 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 images don't work. I, I think in certain cases, and I think the, the kind of processes I've talked about there are quite diffuse. I think they might run across a whole range of departments, information campaigns. I think government's got a lot to learn about, a lot to learn about how those kind of behavioural changes take place over the long term. What are the kind of things that stimulate? Mm-hmm. How can I mean? One thing that really interests me is how can you get Sort of positive behavioural, positive public policy outcomes, mm-hmm. as a result of all the incentives kind of being aligned, and then re- reinforcing each other. Right. And I think that requires quite a lot of thought about how those things work, and that's why I think Nudge Plus is part of that overall story. I think the CBT story is really more specialised. I think that's really often where you have a particular kind of problem, say unemployed youth or uh, particular people suffering particular problems. CBT can be uh, a particular way to incre- encourage a more thinking uh, kind of approach targeted to a particular intervention. But that still will also be part of a journey. I don't think it's just mm-hmm. one or CBT. 
it's going to do. It's going to, it's going to be the kind of magic silver bullet. Uh, How does all, that work? Can, can, mm. you, can you give us an example of CBT in practice? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think basically, you, 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 I think people often make um, uh, a sort of very base. Uh, there's, there's a famous study in, in, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, uh, Heller, I think is the name. And basically, what they did is they administered it was kind of RCT. They administered, administered CBT to these uh, young unemployed youth to try and get them to think more slowly. This is a mm-hmm. kind of Kahneman term. Kahneman has got this distinction between thinking fast, thinking slow. Right. Um, and um, thinking slow has some advantages that people can reflect. Mm-hmm. on the kind of charts, but it's quite hard to get to thinking slow. Mm-hmm. So the temptation in behavioral sciences is like, let's do the thinking fast, let's 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 work out where people think fast and we'll design interventions to get them there. Now I think the, the Heller interventions were really good at saying, well actually I think it could be good for people to, to think think slow. And actually as a result of this study, the actual interventions of the people who have the CBT um, um, uh, were, were kind of much better. It's also been applied in um, uh, sort of similar studies in Liberia, South Africa, mm-hmm. so in the, in the development world. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of intervention has been taken. Uh, also, I don't think it applies to every, it's mm-hmm. not some sort of panacea to apply to every policy problem. Mm-hmm. I see it as a kind of example of building in a degree of citizen reflection into public policy initiatives, mm-hmm. which falls short of the, the high cost of the deliberative thing. And this can actually take place in a variety of different ways. And mm-hmm. I think it's really up to the policymaker to kind of look at the kind of context to think where it is appropriate to design these things in. I don't mm-hmm. think there's a one-size-fits-all kind mm-hmm. of strategy. Mm-hmm. I think it's really an approach which policymakers to take on board. Mm-hmm. And the exact kind of package interventions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. will be something which I think really needs to be designed to work in that kind of context. Mm-hmm. What did the interventions look like in these CBT cases? So if you want to get uh, troubled youth to yeah. start thinking slower about their decisions, how do you actually do that? Uh, well, I mean, there's, 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 tra- there's trained specialists. Mm. Um, obviously, there's issues of consent and need to get into suicide. They, they, these are kind of relatively kind of short courses. They may be sort of uh, you know, basically putting people through um, a, a set of um, sort of routines of kind of thinking pathways and thoughts. Mm. I mean, there's you know, a, a kind of so they have to science. kind of sign up for it. It's a, it's a process where some instructor sort of gives them exercises about how, how to think about decisions. And, Absolutely, yes. And how do you measure the impact of that kind of study? Well, it's the kind of classic RCT uh, that you, you have an intervention group which gets the CBT, right. and then a control group which gets everything else on the mm-hmm. CBT, and then you kind of track people to see what their employment outcomes are. Mm-hmm. Our later on, which has now become a kind of standard mm-hmm. sort of method mm-hmm. of evaluation. In fact, it's always been kind of much more entrenched in the employment uh, studies field than other areas. Mm-hmm. And maybe the case that we're catching up with them. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, so I mean, there's a range of RCTs mm-hmm. uh, across across the world. Chris Blackman is another um, person who's who's also University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Also has done these interventions. So let's say I'm a patient at the NHS and I've experienced really long waiting lines and the government has really been failing me in lots of ways. Mm. How do I get into a conversation with the government about my complaints? That's something which kind of interests me, actually. Um, and um, one of the things 
that um, citizens can do is they can they can they can they can, they can complain. And um, you know, a lot of public organisations have invested quite a lot of time in complaint complaint systems to try and make the process transparent, responsive. Um, and the basic problem is that by the time the complaint happens, often people won't complain. They just put up with things. Right, yeah. Um, and um, and they, kind of, they kind of wait for things to get better. And also complaint, complaint has a kind of cost mm-hmm. to it. It also requires some element of skills mm-hmm. to, to kind of do it. So a lot of citizens are in a state of kind of... Um, Enforced passivity. You know, it doesn't really make sense for them to go and get get angry, right? Um, um, so they kind of put up with things. They just can develop sort of coping strategies. Uh, you know, so if you go to a GP surgery and it's really full, you kind of know that in advance. You mm-hmm. might kind of maybe not necessarily turn up on time yourself because you think, well, it's all going to be late, right? Yeah. Uh, you turn up with a whole bunch of magazines or. <laughs> Your phone all readily charged, mm-hmm. um, so you kind of get ready for these for these sorts of things. Um, the other the other aspect of this is the citizen um, also has a degree of healthy scepticism about these complaints procedures. Uh, so the complaint kind of goes off. You often get some automated acknowledgement. Sure. Yeah. And then, in actual fact, increasing these days, there's a whole range of. Um, AI that's kind of used to mm-hmm. to customize some kind of response. Um, right. So the citizen already starts from a, a kind of degree of distrust of public authority. Right. Um, it's citizens pretty discontented. They finally think, right, I'm going to complain about this. I finally, my patience is now kind of broken. Mm-hmm. But actual fact, they may actually know in the heart of hearts that actual fact, the complaint itself will be, will, will be handled in a way which actually just reflects the general problem. Right. Um, exactly. Um, and the other, I think, from from, and also I think the other point, even from the public authorities' point of view, have to kind of manage all these kind of complaints. Um, mm-hmm. And so, what's the what's the best what's the best way of doing that? And I think the best way of doing that is actually to see these complaints as actually again part of this long term kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. So, in some ways, I think the authority needs to, as uh, I could, could, could always send a whole set of kind of standard responses back. Um, but actually, it might actually make sense to try to see where you can actually have a conversation with this and explain actually things more more realistically. But who's uh, going to have that conversation? Is it the MP or is it somebody else in the administration? Well, often complaints is it's, it's delegated to a particular department. Um, I mean, these people are supervised by politicians, so I mean, everybody's responsible. Um, and you know, there are practical questions about how this actually can 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 happen. Right. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I'll just give you my, my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to travel a lot by train, and I used to get very fed up with um, that. When I sat in a silent carriage, lots of other lots of other rail passengers carried on using their mobile phones, and um, also became aware that the um, you know the station the the, 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 the the conductors on the railway were not enforcing this, and, mm-hmm. and I think okay, I, I you know. Would ask them to enforce it, right? Yeah, which they often refused to oh, do. Oh wow! Okay. So I decided to complain to to Virgin Trains uh, and pointed all this out. Um, and so why, why, you know, when you you are quite happy to put put up all these signs, uh, you know, you make a great pride that you got these silent carriages. You're happy to advertise these things when we when the train journey there are other silent carriages. When it actually comes down to it. you're not prepared to enforce it. So what's the real point? You're not really giving a right instru- right set of incentives. That these things can be kind of trashed right. by 
people who either don't look at the signs or, or, or don't care. And you mm-hmm. put the citizen who's actually invested in time to sit in these carriages, becomes even more frustrated. In fact, after a while, I used to not sit in silent carriages because yeah. I used to get so frustrated. It's actually easier to go in a noisy carriage. But at least you're not disappointed right. by the experience. Um, so I, I, I sent the thing off to version trains. And, uh, you know, you got this range of automated responses. And, uh, and actually, in terms of my kind of frustration, all these responses seemed to make things worse because I just knew that I was just being kind of fobbed off. Right. So I just kept on going. So I basically kind of tried to escalate the, the complaint and really tried it. And eventually, I got a human voice at the end of it and actually had a conversation with it. And they basically explained to me that although print companies like the silent carriages, they actually don't have the power under the existing rail, train, transport law to actually enforce them. Oh, so they wow. actually can't. Oh, wow. So I was, in the end, I thought, okay, I'm still not, I still don't think this has actually solved my problem. Mm-hmm. I still think there's an inconsistency between the claims of the credit company. Um, but at least I've actually got an explanation that actually, that actually affects a real organization has actually, th- actually thought about these sort of things. It's actually prepared to actually talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, I kind of changed my attitude. I thought, okay, uh, they're trying, at least they're trying to have these signed. I mean, I, I did actually think that, well, maybe perhaps they should try to change the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think it necessarily stops there. Right. But you can see that maybe, you know, maybe had I carried on commuting, I would then write back and say, well, look, shouldn't we try and change the law? Shouldn't we try and create a lobby group? Mm-hmm. Uh, other other consumers who are worried about this, mm-hmm. can't you lobby? And and you see that as part of that conversation, all the different joins are all being joined up. It's, 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 it's less a part than the, the individual system just sort of venting off and then being fobbed off. Mm-hmm. It actually requires that citizen to actually understand what actually, it's quite a complex world out there. I mean, we live in a world of sort of anti-politics where people like to vent off, they like to hate the politicians, the decision makers. And the problem is that decision makers are operating under a whole range of kind of constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we're going to have a kind of more constructive democratic politics, like the citizens need to understand that and the, and the politicians need to stop um, developing a whole ranges of strategies just to kind of get off the particular hook they're on on a particular day. Mm-hmm. That conversation really needs to happen. Um, and, and, and debates could actually be, going back to your original question, you know, could actually be a way to do it. They're obviously not going to solve the resource problems in the NHS. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't solve, in my case, I didn't actually get any quieter carriages right. as a result. Right. But as one citizen actually then thought, well, at least there is a decision-making process, I actually then as a result thought, well, the train company does at least care about this issue. It's written, it's actually, it took a while to get through to that point. I mm-hmm. think things could be a lot easier. Now, there's a question about how all this responsiveness is resourced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are private companies. They need to make a profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more they invest in these kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're not totally a private. I mean, in the sense they're working within the public realm. I think these kind of conversations shouldn't cost that much. I think in the end, it might lead to a better rail service or a better... Or a better there mm-hmm. might actually be solutions which, okay, you can't... Maybe the case on the local GP's clinic... You know, it's, it's, a, it's a massive resource. You just need more doctors. But mm-hmm. there could be more efficient ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, citizens could behave in more constructive ways. Mm-hmm. They might not. Um, and often you, what you don't want is citizens to be so angry and cross that they end up taking it out on the actual practitioners themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sure. so, I think, I think, so I think, you know, complaining 
you know, a kind of form of deliberative complaining right, can yeah, work. Yeah. But doesn't Nudge Plus in the end actually rely on the extraordinary willpower of certain citizens to go through all the trouble of calling over and over mm. again mm. and sort of getting that outcome? I mean, it seems still like that the concept is prey to the regular inefficiencies of democracy, you know, because uh, I think we're still operating in the context of collective decision-making where people actually don't have a great incentive to figure out um, whether they're being manipulated or how the government is working because they have a very, very small chance of actually influencing the public policy in the end. So if we actually want to improve inclusiveness in public policy and in the way that we govern ourselves, shouldn't we actually try to promote other kinds of institutions that help connect uh, citizens to, to good uh, public policy outcomes? Should we maybe uh, advocate privatizing the NHS? Because actually, if it's a private corporation or if it's a private company providing me with medical services, then I can actually lodge a complaint and I can expect to hear a response because they, ha they have an incentive to listen to me, right? So should we be looking at other kinds of institutions to encourage uh, institutions to listen to citizens? Um, and I think those things could be, could be good ideas. It could be part of a kind of wider story. I think Nudge Plus on its own is not trying to to say that. And I think a little bit, I think one of the key issues with behavioural public policy is that it's behavioural public policy neutral with respect to different conceptions of how mm -hmm. public life may be followed. So mm -hmm. it could be a kind of more market-based mm -hmm. approach or more state approach. And I think in terms of behavioural public policy, it's neutral across those things. So, for example, you could have behavioural public policy in 100% state-controlled environment, mm -hmm. or you could have behavioral public policy in a very, very decentralized, mm -hmm. more market regulation-driven uh, environment. I think that behavioral policy doesn't actually say one is better than the other. Um, it doesn't say that one particular democratic form is better than the other. What it does say is that marginal improvements, whatever way you're doing business, by introducing behavioral ideas, that marginal improvements can be made incremental improvements can be made and it's worth having those because they're relatively low cost. Mm -hmm. I think Nudge Plus works in a similar sort of way, partly because it's using all those behavioural insights and really seeking to enhance it. So I think, um, so I think uh, you know, even a kind of a, 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 a massive kind of state-controlled uh, organisation could use kind of Nudge Plus, I think, in a regulatory environment. So I think, I think in terms of the argument which I'm putting, I don't think it necessarily entails that um, uh, that, that other other kind of reforms have to kind of follow mm -hmm. from that. I think it's. It, I think the, the the benefit is are things are things better according to various kind of public policy criteria mm -hmm. um, as a result mm -hmm. um, of the of the additional inclusion mm -hmm. uh, in terms of kind of getting to kind of collective kind mm -hmm. of purposes. And if that if that aim is satisfied. And nudge plus is kind of kind of doing its work. Now it may be the case that you know there might actually be other other solutions. Um, it may be the case. I would think it's a, it's a justifiable justifiable criticism that nudge plus might hit against a whole set of kind of institutional kind of constraints. To which means that you know it's it, it, it's kind of you know it, it's 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 it's, a, it's ability to be part of a more general transformation may be kind of limited. But that's not the argument mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to make. So, so long as there are of benefit. In some ways, I think the key issue with Nudge Plus is to really, I'll give you some examples of where I've seen effective Nudge Pluses. I think ultimately it needs much more testing. Mm -hmm. And I think the real, te the real test is, 
does Nudge Plus help deliver these kind of longer-term popular policy objectives? I mean, these are policy objectives which I think there needs to be en- enough collective agreement. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think Nudge Plus is, would be in more difficult territory where there's massive disagreement about what those objectives are. Uh, and, and, and it's the same as with, with behavioural sciences. Sure. As a result, you need a kind of... Everybody needs to agree people paying their taxes on, t- on time is a good. But right. actual fact, right. um, a, a non-littered mm-hmm. public beach is better mm-hmm. than, than a littered. But we need to these kind of relatively categorical mm-hmm. kind of choices. Um, and, and, and in that kind of context, I think you know, Nudge Plus is there, is there to be is there is, is there to be tested? Mm-hmm. I think there are there are additional benefits in terms of a more active citizenry uh, that, in some ways, uh, you know, there are kind of democratic benefits, but that's not the kind of real core aim of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I suppose if other thinkers want to introduce a kind of nudge plus as part of their kind of framework, you know, obviously I'll be very happy mm-hmm. for that to happen. It doesn't necessarily follow from what I'm sure. I'm arguing. Sure. Are you worried that perhaps uh, we, to, to make nudge plus work, that we have to operate on this assumption that the nudgers have a benevolent conception of the public good? Uh, so what happens if, let's say, a large corporation uses behavioral insights to encourage people to get addicted to their phones? Or what happens when the dictator of an authoritarian country uses nudge plus to... Um, to, to kind of nudge people to not turn up at the polls. or These things can obviously used, be used for nefarious purposes as well. So where do the motivations come in and, and how do we stop it from being abused? You're absolutely right that, I mean, and this also applies to nudge as well as to nudge plus. Right, nudge. Um, yeah. That we rely on, uh, on, on the good intentions of those in, in kind of public, public life. And I think an argument would be that... Um, uh, governments are are, are, are elected. Mm. They they have a kind of mission to um, uh, improve the kind of public good, um, and there are kind of rules of kind of fair play in terms of how they may do that and how they may actually appeal to certain groups and not others. Um, so these kind of norms grow up uh, in a democracy. They and in a sense as part of that that system, there's a kind of professional bureaucracy, and people are recruited in the, into the bureaucracy. On the basis of of, kind of professionalism, of, of of seeking to comply with the wishes of their political principles, who have that democratic right. Right. Uh, authorization. I think, in addition to that, I think over the years we've also realised that it's important that public officials have a kind of additional kind of belief, they have a kind of public service ethos, in, in addition to kind of purely. Responding to to kind of commands. I mean, you can have a kind of cynical view of bureaucrats as that all they do is just just respond to commands. And I think right. I think in general, I think obviously we wouldn't want the the public bureaucrats' own ideas of public good to override those the political principles. But on the other hand, given the degree of discretion of bureaucrats over a whole range of activities, which can't be supervised, some notion of public service ethos is kind of desirable. So we assume those things are well diffused in in in, in advanced democracies. Uh, so that when when behavioural sites are adopted, they're adopted for kind of for, 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 for kind of mm-hmm. good ends. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reasonably confident from my own experience that that is the case in general. Mm-hmm. That I think the, the bureaucrats don't have anything to gain mm-hmm. from poor use of behavioural sites, mm-hmm. um, and particularly given the kind of areas that often the areas where 
behavioural sites have been introduced or often areas where everybody can see very clearly, oh yeah, there's a problem. And then people can then see the see the kind of contribution. Um, I mean, one important constraint, it doesn't just apply on apply to the beliefs of the bureaucrats, is the idea that these things are kind of carried out in public. So I think it requires a certain amount of kind of transparency right. about those interventions. Mm-hmm. So that people can find out about them that are kind of publicised, mm-hmm. um, and this of course cuts cuts back to the earlier part of the conversation as to whether nudges are kind of better done in a secret or not. Mm-hmm. And I think it's consistent with the nudge plus argument that it's better that nudges are done much more in public. Right. So at least those those processes of uh, of scrutiny, democratic review, questioning can all be applied and reported in the media. And that's also mm-hmm. part of the um, sustains the legitimacy of using these behavioural interventions that people mm-hmm. can can see what, 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 what is going on. And then, of course, in my view, Nudge Plus mm-hmm. can hopefully participate mm-hmm. in, in, some of those, um, mm-hmm. in some of those decisions. But obviously you have regimes uh, um, uh, which you know, may, may, may use them for, for, those, for those ends. Um, and, you know, and I think, but I think that's really an argument more about democracy, non-democracies, rather sure. Than, sure. Than, than Nudge or not, because there's a whole range of policies, you know, your tax policy, your secret police, yeah, all these course. things. So I don't think nudge actually falls down mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. you make that kind of trend. There's, not, there's nothing kind of special about nudge. I mean, I think we sometimes become suspicious that it gives those kind of regimes extra resources mm-hmm. to to manipulate. Right, uh, right. I think that would be that would be the kind of danger there. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think there's a massive step change uh, in the difference. And I think in the end, I think I think the publicness and the moving things more to a participatory element actually mm-hmm. does provide mm-hmm. those kind of those kind of those kind of safeguards. Um, in the end also I think the more again it goes back to the early part of our conversation is the more I think the more that I think human beings are, are, not, are not stupid people kind of know when they often know when they're being manipulated. Right. I mean a lot of private companies often have to change their marketing structure strategies over and over again. Yeah. Um, and people become suspicious. So you only be aware of looking on a, a website mm-hmm. Any changes, you know, you've made some recent purchasing decisions, mm-hmm. website mm-hmm. changes, people become aware of these sort of things. Mm-hmm. So I have a kind of faith that human beings do, you know, do, 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 can see a kind of mm-hmm. a well-intentioned policy yeah. from one that's, yeah. that's less well-intentioned. Yeah. But obviously that uh, shows my faith in human nature. Well, yeah, perhaps. Do you think that... Um that actually a private, the private sector could benefit from the concept of Nudge Plus in the sense that if they're open mm. more with uh, their consumers about yes. about kind of what they're yeah. doing in terms of their marketing and, and the policies that they have, yes. um, obviously with the latest scandals with uh, some of the large social networking sites mm. and the loss of data, yes. and people feel like they've either been manipulated, mm. that their attention spans have been sold off, and, yeah. and they haven't been told about kind of how their data has been used. You think that actually corporations can can benefit from the insights of Nudge Plus to to help rebuild trust with with their uh, customers. Yeah, I mean even from from a, from a from a kind of bottom line perspective, I mean yeah. I kind of think yeah. that um, uh, I'm sure the big corporations are, you know, starting to think, well how have we got to this state where citizens are trusting us uh, a lot a lot less. Um, and how to rebuild it, and I think part of it is part having that kind of conversation. Um, I think the other thing that's also behind this is that we often operate with this, these terms, public and private. 
And in practice, these things are much kind of closer because a lot of these public organisations are actually helping us provide sort of public goods. So like Facebook is providing also a whole range of public goods from collective action, right, from um, mobilisation, all sorts of all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you saw from my version trains example, um, um, you know, the, the, the silent silent carriage is actually effectively a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of public public good. Yeah, and it's sure. enforced by the, the train the train company. So I think these private companies. They're involved in these kind of wider political questions, mm-hmm. whether they like it or not, uh, and also they're also subject to kind of regulation from the, sure. from the state sure. for, for, for for those reasons right, right. too. Um, so I kind of think you know it's, it's often degrees of of um, of of kind of emphasis. I, mean, I do think the kind of core part of Nudge and Nudge Plus, you know, remains the kind of function of the kind of the public bureaucracies with their democratic mandate and their kind of wider purpose to look at the kind of wider connections across a range of policy mm-hmm. uh, choices and to carry citizens along with them in, in that kind mm-hmm. of journey. So I think that's the core part of it. But, you know, the private sector is actually involved too, because it is because you can't kind of extricate it from all those kind of public choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's quite a lot of read across. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of corporations realise that a lot of what they do is a kind of form of politics. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the yeah. same kind of rules... Sure. Uh, the same kind of principles kind of apply if, if in a slightly different mm-hmm. different way. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the future of behavioral economics as a field? Um, do you think it's changing? Is it getting more interdisciplinary? Yeah, it's a, it's a fast-moving field. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's been going for some time now, uh, since the, I think probably the mid-1970s, if you wanted to put a, uh, a time period on it. I mean, some... Behavioral economists like Adam Oliver, who gave it a, a discussion point at my talk, um, you know, identifies it right back in the 1950s. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, you can go back to Adam Smith, yeah. fine kind of behavioral uh, mm-hmm. economics there. But I think it is essentially a kind of modern phenomenon, and it's relying on uh, using the kind of tools of economics. So, in a sense, there is still kind of modeling, there's still kind of, you know, you've got behavioral game theory. There's still the use of advanced kind of methods, mm-hmm. and that's the kind of core of kind of behavioral mm-hmm. um, uh, economics. Um, and so it kind of it kind of has a kind of very quite close relationship to the mainstream of economics, and mm-hmm. the two aren't really mm-hmm. on completely different kind of planets. Um, and um, I think behavioral economics is kind of growing. Um, I think there's less suspicion of it by mainstream economics. We've got all these kind of practical applications. There seems no sign of a lack of demand for the public sector for more behavioral. Like mm-hmm. One often notices with students are often very attracted to doing behavioral options. They think that it's kind of relevant. I think economics has always suffered from this problem of abstraction, lack of relevance to real world problems. I think behavioral economics is a kind of uh, correction to that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, just in terms of the number of publications, there's also new outlets, new journal outlets. I think we're still very much in the up, up, upswing. There's still lots of problems to investigate. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of different kind of psychological uh, approaches that can be kind of taken. Um, and also a kind of long-term dialogue with the assumptions of kind of neoclassical mm-hmm. uh, economics. So I think we're very much uh, in, in the upswing uh, in terms of the number of the people doing it, mm-hmm. the range of attention, whether that has a trajectory at some future point, uh, it's hard to predict, but certainly 
uh, at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the subdiscipline or mm-hmm. interdisciplinary. I mean, that's the other aspect you mentioned in your question is you don't just have behavioral economics, economists doing behavioral policy, but you have uh, people in policy departments, social policy. Right. We're in a department of political economy yeah. here. Yeah. I'm a political yeah. scientist. Right. Um, and there's, there's people doing various kind of specialists in kind of transport and health. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think, uh, while I think behavioural economics is sort of still at the kind of core of kind of thinking, it has diffused right across uh, mm-hmm. ranges mm-hmm. of disciplines. In fact, some disciplines always thought they were doing behavioural stuff uh, mm-hmm. a lot before. Then. So there's a discipline of kind of social marketing things that they were doing behavioural yeah. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, before, so mm-hmm. uh, there's a bit of credit claiming Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. going on. But I think there's a general shared purpose. This is something which in social science has, has become much more pronounced. I mean, social yeah. science has always been interested in behaviour. Human behaviour has always been mm-hmm. the core of social science. But I think what we have now is a much more overt uh, attempt to theorise and test test various d- different models and interventions mm-hmm. uh, that perhaps we wouldn't have seen 25 or 30 years right. ago. Right, yeah, considering the concept of nudge itself, uh, it really has a lot of different angles to it, uh, both in terms of um, economics and policy and ethics and um, philosophy. You yourself have a rather interdisciplinary background. Um, You didn't really start with this in your career as a political scientist necessarily, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your own intellectual journey and how being interdisciplinary has influenced your work? Well, my first degree was actually in economics uh, and, and politics, so I've always studied um, uh, different different disciplines. I think political science itself is actually quite an interdisciplinary subject. It kind of borrows from other disciplines, mm-hmm. so from sociology, from economics. Um, and um, uh, I suppose one of the things that I think, and also in the policy world, I mean, I'm, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of public policy. Public policy itself is interdisciplinary. It often requires insights from specialist fields such as, say, housing or social policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the study of study policy is trying to see the kind of wider connections mm-hmm. so in that field and the link to kind of political processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is itself an interdisciplinary mm-hmm. um, exercise. Um, I think for anyone who's interested in the, the term we call impact these days, the idea that the economy would like to have a kind of positive impact uh, in the policy world or the real world, that is itself interdisciplinary because you can't kind of just pigeonhole citizens into kind of political animals, social animals, right. uh, economic animals. These two things always kind of read across. Um, and I think it's the attraction of the behavioural approach that it kind of does read across uh, quite quite naturally. So mm-hmm. when I was doing my work in university in Manchester, you know, we did, we did, we we kind of were quite relaxed about what topics we, we kind of looked at. Um, so in the original Nudge Nudge Think Think book we did, which collected together all our experiments, we had, we had some complaints experiments, we had some environmental experiments, we had an organ donation experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what was interesting was the extent to which the ideas had traction, had relevance, extent to which you could sort of test them kind of robustly, yeah. um, whether it was transport or, or mm-hmm. environment. To mm-hmm. me, these are all just ranges of kind of human problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've personally really been relaxed about this, and I think actually if some of these silos could be kind of lessened 
mm-hmm. as a result of the kind of behavioral agenda. I think that's kind of, that's, like, that's a kind of good thing because right. you've got a much more healthy cross fertilization mm-hmm. of ideas. Often the case that if you talk to somebody who's been working in a kind of transport institute, they've got sets of assumptions about what the kind of solutions are, what the kind of problems are. Right, right. Uh, I think it's nice to kind of be disruptive, yeah. uh, think think laterally, think think across think across the piece. Mm-hmm. And I think the behavioral science agenda has that ability to be mm-hmm. uh, disruptive, partly because it's interested in asking the kind of fundamental questions. Mm-hmm. And also it's associated with, you know, really robust methods to kind of test out the assumptions. So you know very quickly when your theory is not right because yeah. you're gonna get your results. Yeah. So um, you know, I, I've I've been very happy to to be on this journey. I'm really pleased that in political science we've discovered Rediscovered. Well, actually, you can go back to the 1920s and find trials yeah. rediscovered uh, randomized evaluations. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, I think in political science too, uh, it's often got sort of sidetracked into very, very sort of arcane debates about sort of committee allocations and right, yeah. chairs and that. I kind of think a more policy orientated, mm-hmm. interdisciplinary focus in political science. I think is is really important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we, I mean, a great view of the politics is incredibly important. Right. Um, in, in, in the world where we need to kind of get politics right in lots of ways. And um, I think as global scientists, we we need to be engaged with that kind of public debate mm-hmm. about the politics, how does politics intersect. And obviously in public policy, politics is incredibly important uh, in terms of that kind of intersection. So mm-hmm. I think we need to look at these kind of wider questions. So I think mm-hmm. interdisciplinarity is part of a kind of wider intellectual quest to kind of have a much more broader, more policy-relevant social science, which also asks the kind of fundamental kind of questions. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. To all of our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast with us today. You can actually buy Peter's book, How Far to Nudge, Assessing Behavioral Public Policy, in stores today, and you can use discount code VIP35. You can also find more podcasts, blogs, and live events on the cutting-edge debates and governance by following us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is CSGSKCL. And to those of you on the King's community, please do join us for Peter's book launch on June 5th. For more information, just contact us at info at csgs.kcl.ac.uk. We look forward to seeing you all again soon on the next Governance Podcast.